Welcome back, episode 70. It's just Matt and I today, so it should be a lot of fun. Um, Chelsea jokingly asked for an entire car episode, which is super ironic because I don't have anything on the little docket thing today about cars at all, even though we're the two car guys of the group. Um, I actually wanted to start in a, like a totally different direction, sort of like a, I'm going somewhere with this, but we're going to start off by just asking, Matt, have you seen any of this? I don't know if I've sent you anything. Have you seen anything that like Mark Andreessen or any of those guys have said on Twitter about what they're calling, and this is a, this is a proper noun, the current thing? No, I have no clue. So this is sort of an experiment that Mark, and a little background on him, uh, Mark Andreessen, uh, and I forget the other guy's first name, but it's like Andreessen Horowitz and a few others, they run uh, A16Z, which is a venture capital firm. Uh, Mark's been around for a while. He is a lifelong venture capitalist, inventor, uh, entrepreneur, and a pretty well-known figure on Twitter for, he's one of those guys that just, he says what's on his mind. He says a lot of kind of spicy takes, and whenever the trolls come after him, he just relentlessly blocks everyone, which I'm always a huge fan of anyone that does that because I say that's kind of what the platform was meant for. It was, hey, speak your mind, do your thing. If people are coming at you, just get rid of them. That's not what it's meant for. We want to start conversations. But there are other moral issues involved in that. Regardless, he's been doing this experiment uh, around what he's been calling the current thing, and I had to really pay attention. I I guess I could have asked, but I didn't want to risk getting in the middle of that dog pile at any point. I, I was curious to what the current thing actually was, because it was usually said without any context at all. It'd be like, he who controls X, Y, and Z controls the current thing, or so-and-so. It, it was all about what was going on, and sort of the direction he was going with it is, the current thing is whatever the mainstream media publications are all pushing for any of a few reasons, it, either to gain moral outrage, to push views, uh, just to start conversations, really anything. And it doesn't have to be a, like a super cynical way of looking at it. Like I know a lot of people, myself included, sometimes are, you know, tinfoil hat, the big media controls everything and they're just trying to get you angry and divide you. But that's not necessarily what it means. Like the current thing at some point was COVID-19. Then the current thing was vaccines. The current thing at the moment uh, is the Ukraine-Russia war. That, that is the current thing that everyone is talking about and everything everyone is doing. And I swear there is an end to where I am going somewhere with this, but he caught my eye today when he put out a tweet that says, there's been a lull in the current thing, everybody buckle up, or that's paraphrasing, something like that. And I had been feeling the same exact way. I said in the past week or so, there's not been a lot of outrage about the current things. There's no current thing at the moment, which means it's almost worth making a bet that there's going to be a new current thing in the next two, three weeks or so. What do you think about that craziness? Mm. <laughs> I don't know. That's I a lot. I know. I put on my tinfoil hat and say, "Oh, they're going to create another tin. They're going to create another thing to keep us under their control." Right. I mean. We did have 30 people shot and or killed this weekend in mass shootings in the United States, but that didn't take up much traction. So apparently the U.S. is done with that. It's not interesting to us anymore. It's just daily news. That was the current thing in the early 2010 era, yeah. which is a horrible, horrible thing to say. But, I mean, it, it doesn't garner views anymore. We're kind of just we're so numb and used to it. It'd be great if we got away from this sensationalized news to the point where the news stations actually have to put out good news that's interesting and not just like, oh my God, this is the most terrifying thing in the entire world. And I feel like that's what the current thing is all the time right now. What is terrifying? What can we put on there? And eventually we'll be just like, okay, whatever. Right. It was my favorite story of the media in a long time was way back in the early 1900s. The British Broadcasting Channel came on and said, Good evening. There is no news. And then they just played piano music for like two hours. Like that, that's, that's the goal. It, it would be beautiful if that's the way it worked. There's no way it's going to happen. Okay. So I digress. Let's get to the point. We're going to start off with a state of the unions, big old drum roll. I was actually happy. I love seeing union news because we do it every time we see it. Throwing it back to Starbucks. Starbucks now officially has 20 stores since we started reporting on this that do have unions confirmed. They voted for it in favor. The most recent one was in Knoxville, Tennessee. They only won by one vote. And of those 20, I guess there's been 21 votes in total. And of those 21 stores that have voted on this, only one store, which is in Buffalo, New York, which is also the same place 
that the first store that voted for a union voted in favor for, only one store has rejected it, and it's also in Buffalo, New York. And I think I'm going to go out on the limb and say that something along the lines of unionization and power to the people slash workers is the next current thing. Yes, I'm seeing more of this even in my realm. I mean, I sent this in our little group chat outside of it, and I saw that uh, medical house staff were unionizing, and the house staff included, like, the nurses and the residents and all that type of stuff. And for us, I mean, it's amazing because residents work 80-hour-plus weeks, so you're working two full-time jobs, and they get paid under minimum wage, essentially, because they're salary. And, like... I'm very pro for it. If like now that I've seen it in my world and like how it can make changes, I didn't really understand it fully before because I'd never been in a union field. Really, it it makes a whole lot more sense. I'm careful about this because we have to think what are the results of this, and you got kind of two sides here, like you usually do. And I'm going to come back to this theme later on with something else we have to talk about. But the two sides of this of this theme, I think, are one. We're ruining the human existence by overworking and destroying all the awesome stuff that we've built. Two, there is a price to pay. If there are fewer people out producing and fewer people serving the services, we can't have what we want. It's just how it works. So we either all pull a little more weight collectively or a few of us pull significantly more weight, which I think happens more often in the medical field, as there are fewer of you than there are patients in total. Right. And... I don't know. I don't want to be biased here in any way, shape, or form, but I feel like you put a union in a low-skill field, it's really easy for the corporation to come in and say, okay, Starbucks unionized, we'll stick in robots instead. We can put four $30,000 robots in there, and it'll do all the work of six people in Starbucks, and that's just one-year salary, and we don't have to like keep paying it after that. We just have to pay repairs, and that's all done. So I can see that. I mean, they're even starting to do stuff in the med field. I mean, we've got AI that are reading, uh, like, scans and all. You get an x-ray, they've got them that can identify all sorts of different stuff on there now. So, like, we, we can be replaced. We just got to find out, like, wh- what's the line that, like, we can tow of whether or not we are still worth it to the corporation to keep uh, putting in the work that we do and what is, like, okay, we can replace this with tech instead of people. Well, we mentioned this last week whenever we talked about how uh, the new OpenAI program is basically able to write, it's basically able to create art from words, and it's just, it's gorgeous, wonderful art, and how everyone had said in the past, well, AI is going to, or the robots are going to come for the automated jobs, or the uh, the physical labor jobs first, they're going to take the blue collar work, and it's going to be proportionally bad for the lower classes. When, in fact, it appears that it's taking the higher skilled work, which would be the programming, uh, the software solutions, and the creative work. It's removing that first before it takes away the manual labor work. And I think it's not a long shot to say that an automated barista is quite different from an automated medical practitioner that has to make decisions that are based around a human being and their lifestyle instead of just being able to plug in a few numbers and saying, here, you should take this drug and move on. Right. I agree. I don't know, though. I feel like eventually we're going to reach a point where it'll be able to like make almost all the decisions. I mean, so many of the telehealth apps and uh, there's a lot of them for mental health and all. You can go in and you, you work with a chat bot that's attached to AI and it can tell you, okay, this is most likely what you have going on. And then it refers you to a doctor and they make the full diagnosis, but like it cuts out a whole lot of time in the med field at least where it's like, okay, the person, the doctor just has to like review what the person put in, like whatever they type in fills in the chart for the doctor. The machine spits out, this is what it probably is. These are the other options. And the doctor reviews it goes, yep, this is correct. Signs off on it, makes a script and moves on. Like five minutes of work and compared to like 15 to 20, if they're actually like seeing the patient. That sounds like a bull case for me. That sounds like a really good thing because you're cutting down the manual labor work and then you just have to do the intelligence-based creative work as the doctor to do the problem solving. Yeah, but it's only a short step away from, okay, the doctor just has to like sign off on these things and see that it's right to, okay, AI can do everything. I feel like we are moving at light speed towards that where like AI will be able to make these type of decisions very quick. 
I think the financial world's actually in a similar position too. So, the, I mean, the traditional financial financial advisor role has changed tremendously, at least in the past 10 years or so. Past 30 years, enormously. It used to, oh, oh my God. Okay, so let's go back even further. Talk about 50 years ago, where you literally had to call your broker up and be like, hey, I'd like to buy 50 shares of Apple. And you like they'd have to go out and make calls and put that order in. And now... I don't, I don't have like a broker. I go through an app, which is technically quote unquote, my broker. And that's what I use. I manage all my retirement stuff through there. I manage all my portfolios, everything. I can do it from my phone. I don't have to talk to a single human being, make the decisions on my own. And it does it faster than any other physical human could do. And it's only getting more like that. Oh yeah. My grandfather did it the old school way where you actually called your broker up until the early 2010s, late 2000s, something like that. He would watch sports all day and have the stock tickers scrolling below. <laughs> he would call them up and be like, hey, I need to buy however many shares of this or sell however much of this. See, that's like the Jordan Belford era. Wild, but yeah, things move fast. They do move fast and they only move them faster. I don't know. I, so there was another article I saw. I, I, I can't quote it because I don't remember who it was from, but it was on Twitter and I looked into it and it was talking about how the faster we move towards this hyper reality, hyper consumption type of thing, we sort of just have to adjust to it. Like there's no real going back. Everyone talks about, well, we just have to wait until the prices go back to normal. So this, this goes back to normal. until society goes back to normal. And it doesn't really work that way. It just continues to go and we either have to adapt or move. And I was thinking about that one for a while. I was like, how do we really adapt? Do we try to leverage technology? Because the people around you aren't going to slow down. Like even if you can identify I'm moving too fast. Everything around me is moving too fast. I'm not enjoying it. Everything around you isn't going to slow down to adapt to you. You have to kind of create your own systems and build a life that is, one, profitable enough that you can survive in that world, and two, slow enough that you can still enjoy it and have a good experience. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's wild. It's just like you're saying, like, how financial advisors have changed so much since the 90s and that type thing. Like like it's just like we have a college degree it's always been four years like essentially yep. med school always been four years but like since the 90s the amount of knowledge that we have learned in like all fields no matter what it is whether it be education business science fields stem all that type of stuff has grown exponentially and the amount of time to learn it hasn't changed you're still getting the same degree in four years but we just expected all the students to all of a sudden learn extremely fast and pick up all this information in the same amount of time that people learned in the past. Do you think we don't learn faster than we used to? I think we do. And I think it's somewhat scary because the kids that are continually growing up are learning faster and faster and faster. But I also think it's increasingly damaging our mental health and all that type of stuff because we are always in hyperdrive. We, we aren't having any time for our systems to kind of like cool off, relax, recoup. Oh, I totally agree with that. I'll... So I think about this one too, for the kids that are growing up and having to learn faster. And I, I don't, I don't really know or hang out with any kids. I don't really have a lot of family members, young kids. So I don't know who I would talk to to figure this out and pick their brains on it. But it does seem to me that you could replace 10 skills with one and use less brain power to do it. And what I mean by that is instead of having to learn 20 different ways to do a math problem. If you can learn how to do it on a calculator and learn how that calculator operates, is it not more beneficial to do it that way? Because you're, you're literally saving processing power within your brain. And you could apply that principle to internet skills and problem solving skills. I think as well as social and sales skills as well. And if you could teach those things early on, you wouldn't need to actually know the intermediate, intermediate, ugh, ugh, I tripped over that one. Intermediary systems and problem-solving skills, because you could just get around it with the uh, the technology skills. I mean, I agree, but I feel like, at least what I notice is our education system, regardless of the fact that we have new tech that can do all these sorts of things, that negates all the intermediary uh, work that you'd have to do. We still learn it. And what I'll call an analog fashion. Yeah. So you learn it as if you are, like, I'll use my dad's example. My dad was in the Navy. Now all the ships are controlled by computers. You can do everything like that. But you still get taught as if it's like a steamer ship, pretty much. Like, you're still learning the very, very basics and everything in between. 
because like there's always that thought like well what if something happens to the world and we don't have technology we got to have people to do these things but we see that in everything whether it be math or science or uh literature or whatever else we have to learn everything in between we can't just learn like this is the basics and this is what we use now we have to learn everything in between yeah i agree with you i think that's all really good points i don't know i feel like a lot of this stuff would be better replaced with like philosophy psychology and stuff like that because you can glean big lessons off of those and if you can apply those to the greater technology you could probably be steered away from the big issues we've had with technology which has been a lot of you know damaging mental health uh overworking or not understanding how to communicate in ways that are productive i mean that's god that's got to be the biggest problem we have as a society is we're just we're completely divided because none of us can actually have a conversation and talk to each other and figure out the common ground yeah i agree i I feel like we, we really need to learn how to make education more enjoyable too i mean ed, the way we do it is so broken i mean you remember growing up the system we used to read was accelerated reader the ar system yeah do you so you'd have books and they were somehow graded on a scale of this is a 12th grader level reading and this is a first grader level reading and you you were kind of graded along the way if oh you're in fourth grade but you're reading at a 12th grade level and like 12th grade level is like a harry potter book like dude if you're struggling through that harry potter book in 12th grade i don't know what to say but mm. so but it, it didn't incentivize reading in the right way you read because you were trying to get points to try to like be smart in the class and all that type of stuff and i think it killed people's joy for reading and the amount you can get from it and like the philosophy you learn along the way like i feel like that's a great way students could learn philosophy fantastic in a fantastic way through like great books like dune dune has a whole lot of philosophy in it if they learn to read and love it they would learn this stuff passively and they're not having to like sit down and read stuff from people that died centuries ago and it bores them to death and they don't pay attention and it goes in one year and then out the other once they're done taking the exam this is true Good sales and good business is majority storytelling, and majority storytelling is all lessons. It's how do you get from point A to point B, and what'd you learn along the way? Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a fun way of looking at that. I like that. Okay. I was thinking about something else today, super interesting. Before we go too far off this, I don't know why this came to mind. Do you, do you watch Bob's Burgers? I watch most of it, I think. So I actually, I love Bob's Burgers, and I was thinking about how I have no idea what their target audience is. It doesn't make any sense. It's not like an adult, raunchy cartoon show like Family Guy. It's kind of family-friendly. Like, they barely swear. They don't really do anything sexual. It's, it's just a super enjoyable show. And Bob's just kind of a lovable goofball, super relatable dude who's doing his best for his family. And I was thinking about an episode that had a really kind of interesting metaphor story behind it. And in this episode, he goes to his dad's for Christmas, and his dad runs another sandwich shop. He, Bob himself, owns a burger place. So his dad runs an old sandwich shop down the road. And he goes there, and all the customers that he grew up with are all kind of eating the same thing. They all, they all walk in and say, hey, I'll have the special. And so that's what they get. They all get the exact same thing from him. Bob comes in, and he's going through this old family trauma of, like, his dad pushed him away because he wouldn't let him try new sandwiches and all that stuff. So he comes in and is like, Dad, for Christmas, just let me make a new sandwich for one of the guys. And he's like, nope, we're going to do it the way we always did it. And he says, and one of the customers is like, wait, I want to try the new sandwich. He says, nope, you're going to have the tuna melt because you've always had the tuna melt and you love the tuna melt. And the guy's like, no, wait, like, I kind of want to, I kind of want to try the new one. Long story short, all culminates. He makes the new sandwich. Guy tries the sandwich, loves it. He's like, wow, this is crazy. I love it. Still love the tuna melt though. And it just totally pushes Bob's dad away. The whole the whole moral of the story is he looks and he's like, wait a minute, this was a pride thing. It had nothing to do with sandwiches. It was we couldn't agree because there was a deeper issue and we're just trying to be right for the sake of being right. Nothing actually matters. And I was like, holy shit. Every time I open up the Internet, it seems like I'm watching this same episode over and over. It just it's like two different perspectives who are arguing about sandwiches. But on a deeper level, they're not actually arguing about sandwiches. They're arguing about something else. They don't really give a shit about the sandwich itself. It's just, it's very strange. And I have no idea how we get around it. We all love sandwiches. Nobody actually cares what sandwich the other's eating. We all just want to be happy. They both just want to be right. Yep. That's the thing. Whether we got to teach people to be okay with being wrong. My God, I couldn't agree more. Crazy. That's we teach the exact opposite of that throughout school. You have to be right. I mean, you get graded. That's the whole point. You want to be perfect 100 percent of the time. 
and then we get out in life and we're wrong and then when we are wrong we don't like it we fight against it we got to teach people okay like you can be wrong it's okay to be wrong you learn a whole lot more from being wrong than you do right the entrepreneurs definitely push that a lot they just kind of do it in like a hyper alpha male scammy way i mean you see it as much as i do all the thread boys they're like go out and try to be wrong be wrong as much as you can that's when you learn the most blah 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 and that's not a very appealing way to look at it but they're kind of right yeah i don't know i mean you can't go out and actively be wrong their whole thing is weird but it is i don't know maybe maybe just be gracious when you lose things like don't just fight against it that's my only way to put it sure a calm attitude and open mind will get you a long ways exactly yep all right i want to hear about this app you got on here this what the The, app yeah elon thing Okay, so I saw this, I was scrolling through Product Hunt. If you don't have it, it kind of gives you a bunch of like little apps and all that's coming out, like Web3 type stuff. It's called elon-mars.netlify.app. And it's a web app, you can plug it into your browser. And I don't know if you played that old, it was on Cool Math Games, little bubble pop game. You're the guy that moves around the bottom of the screen, you press space bar and it pops the bubbles above. This is the same thing except it has Elon in a spacesuit on Mars and the bubbles he's trying to pop are Dogecoins and then little Jeff Bezos heads come down and they if they land on him, he dies. <laughs> if he destroys them with his little gun thing or whatever, then he gets bonus points. It's dumb, but I thought it was hilarious in peak Elon type game. Well, if we have to take a lesson from it, it's the he who controls the memes controls the world. <laughs> exactly. That is funny. I'll, I'll link that. I'll see if I can get a link to it just because that's so goofy and I think it's worth putting up. It's worth about like two and a half minutes of your day to go on there and play it and be like, okay, th- this was a good little smile. Now we're done. Restored hope and humanity. <laughs> All righty. All right, let's jump into tech. We're doing pretty good. Uh, I only got one for you and I think this one's kind of fun. So the Rivian CEO came on and uh, he, he put himself on the microphone and we've talked about Rivian before. They're one of the electric truck companies that is trying to get products out on the road. They don't have anything actively on the road. Their target is sort of a mid-size work-based pickup. And I think they look pretty good. I don't know if it competes with the F-150 Lightning. I think Ford's kind of got the mid mid-size electric truck cornered with that product. But uh, he came on uh, a couple different platforms and said, hey, we're going to have a battery shortage that makes the microchip shortage look like nothing. It's just going to blow it out of the water. And it just keeps drawing me back to like a few things. One, isn't this actually a good thing? I think this is directly a product of demand and not supply. I think they have so many orders for new, for new trucks and new electric vehicles that they can't supply the batteries. It means our demand for electric vehicles is going up, which means theoretically our usage of fossil fuels in personal automobiles should be going down in the future, which is a good thing for everyone. Kind of, sort of. There's different caveats to that, but we're not going to go too far into it. And the other part of it is, I think this is going to change how we look at these companies and how we look at their supply chains. Elon has come on and said, hey, look, Tesla literally can't get chips and we can't get the materials to battery cells. We're looking into mining the materials ourselves as our own company. Does this kind of mean that companies that want to build their own vehicles, battery cells, microchips, things like that, they'd all have their own small divisions? Or are we just going to find another company out there who says, wait a minute, we can actually we, we can actually get the supply to you in the time frame that you need at the cost you need. Like we have the competitive advantage. I don't really know what's going to happen, but if I think there's a great investment opportunity on betting on one of those two outcomes. I'd probably stick my bet on the Elon type train where they're going to like figure it out themselves. So I think all the companies that are out there doing it already, they have the advantage of the setup infrastructure, all that type stuff, but they're, behind in tech and behind in like abstract thought processes of like, okay, how can we get this done? How can we get it done faster? And the benefit of companies like Tesla or Rivian or whatever else that are trying to do it is they're trying to take a space age look at it as compared to a 1980s, like, or even coal miner era type thing, like thought of how we're going to mine this stuff. 
Like, I feel like if he goes in with, like, his full tech thoughts and figures out a way to do it super fast, super uh, efficient and all, he'll get it done a whole lot better and cheaper than the companies that are already out there can. So you mean the, you're saying the mining companies are behind in thought process, right? Yeah, I think they're still kind of stuck in a past age, like a lot of like uh, different groups out there are. But like, I feel like Elon taking that into the world will help propel him past the fact that the current mining companies like already have infrastructure and all set up to do it themselves. So are you betting on that outcome because of who he is or because of anything surrounding that? Because... I'm betting on the fact that he has a whole lot of people that are way smarter than him sitting in a room that he just uses to think of things to get problems solved. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually buy that. I I wouldn't bet on all of the EV companies to do that as a whole, but I would bet on a, a very specific few like his. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I think mm-hmm. Tesla could get it done. I don't know about Rivian. I don't think Nikola can figure it out. They've had way too many issues in the past. I think Ford has the capacity to look at the potential for their own minds, just because they're a ginormous conglomerate. Something like Toyota could do it. Uh, the the German companies maybe could. They own so much land. It is an interesting question. I hadn't thought of it that way. He'd probably find some way to like, because it destroys the land to mine for these things. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the pictures online. It's just big, basically an inverted cone into the ground. Yeah. Right, like cuts it all out he'd find some way to repurpose it as like a launch pad for like his rockets or something like it'd be perfect for that reason so like i feel like there's some good that would come out of it too if he went into it rather than these other companies well eventually we're gonna have to recycle stuff i mean there's there's really no way around that if we use resources we're going to run out eventually and land is going to be destroyed eventually so we do have to figure out ways around it i know in the real estate world one of the fun things that i learned quite a while ago was that a lot, so dirt is actually very expensive, which is a strange concept because we have so much dirt, but dirt, dirt is expensive. It just is. You, it's hard to find and move. And so whenever you're building commercial properties, you need to have proper drainage. So you need to have retention ponds, right? For whenever it rains, it has to have runoff down there so it doesn't flood the roads. So what they'll do a lot of times is if you dig a giant hole for your lake, for your retention pond, you would use that dirt. You could sell it out to someone who needs dirt to lower your cost for the actual building. That's a really cool way of like recycling a cost. So, I mean, I have to imagine if you're a mining company, being able to recycle the materials that you don't use has got to be one of the most important concepts for improving your bottom line. Yeah, and I I think it's something that it isn't used as much as it should be either. I think like, like I kind of previously said, we're kind of stuck in a previous age and like, there was one key thing we were looking for when we were mining one piece of metal or whatever that was there. And that's what we mined for. And then we extract that out somehow. And then the rest of it kind of just gets like tossed away somewhere. I mean, obviously things are changing. Like we've had to like increase revenue and find other ways to do this type stuff. But like, I feel like it, we we've been missing that for a while. Right. I think that factors into our current pricing environment as well. And I, I have been, I've been known to say that the numbers don't matter recently. I think they don't. I think it's all insanity. I, I, I purely don't think that the numbers of anything really matters right now. And I, I get a lot of flack for it. People say, well, John, people are getting hurt. Things are happening. The lower classes are getting torn apart by this kind of thing. They can't afford to live anymore. And I say, here's the problem. We're going to have to have one big hurt. There's no way to fix it. The institutions have so much cheap money. We've broken our system. We've inflated ourselves into nothing. We make fun of Venezuela. We literally did a Venezuela. We just haven't realized it. But maybe not to that same extreme. You get what I'm saying. But we have, we've walked into this trap where our money is worth absolutely nothing. And it's going to hit the point where we got to realize the cost to do new things is quickly getting outpaced by the price, or no, I'm sorry, the price to recycle old materials to basically scrape something, make it new, and use fully recycled materials for it is quickly going to get better than the cost to do it brand new. There's companies over in Europe that are making awesome profits by pulling trash out of the ocean and using that trash to produce products and then sell them. And they can do that because the prices for new goods have gotten so flipping high because we just don't have the resources or labor that they can make a profit doing this. 
we have to realize at some point that that's the that's the future. That's the way to go. Like we're gonna have to recycle our resources and get moving on it. On the first point that you were making, you think we meme stocked our way into this housing crisis? Um, that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, no. So, okay, we can we can do real estate because I actually wrote about this. I think this is really interesting. Do you want to jump into it? Yeah, go okay. for it. Awesome. So. This is fun. I actually found this article in Wall Street Journal earlier today. It was talking about how homeowners associations are fighting back about, against all the investors and uh, the, the companies that are just buying up homes and droves, the Zillows and Blackstones of the world, in order to use for single-family rental homes. And they're doing this because they're just absolutely sick of their neighborhoods being 50% rentals, so they don't they literally don't have neighbors anymore. Like they, They're destroying the human experience. And this is such... A fascinating topic. On one hand, we have a completely tried and true capitalism way of looking at it and say, hey, let the institutional capital take care of it. The end product is going to be better because we have people who know how to handle money in charge. They'll take care of it. They'll have a better end product. On the other hand, they're actively destroying the human experience. They're ruining the point of having neighbors. They're making it impossible to find a home somewhere. You literally can't buy a house anymore. You just kind of have to rent or move somewhere where no one else is. And it's just, it's become a problem. So we got to fix something here. I don't know if we meme stocked our way into a housing crisis. What we did is we made our government and our central bank made a bunch of really horrible decisions that weren't entirely their fault, which is fine. And the capital part, the capital, the institutional capital did what they were supposed to do, which is make a profit. Problem is, they, there was so much cheap money that the only way to make a profit was to suck everyone else dry and destroy everything that has to do with the housing market. And that's just, it's, it's like a giant case of it wasn't really any one party's fault. It was everyone's fault. And it all, hate to be this guy, tinfoil hat, it literally all started with the media making everything crazy. And if we would just stop reading the news and everyone focus on your local communities and being a good person to your neighbors, we'd all be fine. But Okay, fine. Off my high horse now. Here's my take on it and why I say we meme stocked our way into a housing crisis is okay. because obviously the meme stocks, they were horde mentality, essentially, or mob mentality, whatever you want to call it. Like, right. they're like, ah, oh, we're going to take this to the moon. We're jacking all the way up. And like, obviously, the housing market has done kind of the same thing, but it hasn't just, like, it's not just the corporations that were doing this. It's not just BlackRock. It's not just Zillow that are driving up the prices. I'm seeing a lot of people, at least down here, that I know of that are moving. They're selling their house and they're buying another house. And I'm like, okay, I get that. You can get a lot for your house right now. But it doesn't make sense to sell your house at the peak of the market to buy another house at the peak of the market. That doesn't aid you in any way, shape, or form. I mean, you might make a good bit of profit on your house, but you're probably going to have to downgrade on what you were planning to get afterwards. I get it. It makes a sense. If you have multiple homes, which some people do, you got a second home, you got someone else you can live with for a period of time. Like you got a grandmother, have your grandma move in, sell her house at a grand uh, big old profit. And then like, you can like put her somewhere else afterwards. But like, there's a lot of people that are moving just like in the mob mentality of the houses are buying and selling. <laughs> they're like, oh, we made so much money. And then they go to try to buy another house. And they're realizing that you're having to offer $50,000 over asking down here in South Florida or more. And it's like, oh, the, what, what do I do? I have to pay so much for a house. It's not as good as the one I had. I'm like, well, you shouldn't have sold the other one you had first. Yep. <sighs> well, I'm sure you'll agree with me here. The lesson here is that you're, the home in which you're raising your family is not an investment property. I agree. And I think we've, we've, we've started to see data come out on that, that like the traditional mentality of, your home is the best investment that you can make. If you are renting a property your entire life, you are consistently losing money. And there's been multiple studies that have came out that said, eh, they're kind of equal. There's no doubt that renting is getting more expensive. There is also no doubt that purchasing a house has never been more expensive compared to how what it will cost you, what, what you will have to give up in other areas of your life. Because by the like by the direct numbers, I, I don't like comparing things by direct numbers because again, remember, a car was what, like a brand new Mercedes was what, 2000 bucks in like the 40s. So you can't just, and you can't just adjust for inflation and CPI 
there, there's a lot of dirt in those numbers. There's where you live, what's happening, everything's different. You have to compare apples to apples if you're gonna make that comparison. So I don't know, I, I'm really careful whenever a lot of people say, renting is the worst thing you can ever do because I say, well, it depends on a lot. And if you got 30 seconds, I'll tell you why. If you're our age, which is mid 20s, you have to factor in the time value of your money. Your money is worth so much more than someone who's 50 years old. And the reason for that is because it has more time to grow. If you have to deal with a relatively large down payment for a house, for any other large expense that people say will pay off in the long run because it'll become an asset for you, you have to be really careful because you have to hope that the return of that asset in X amount of years, whether it's 15 or 30, depending on the mortgage you get, you have to hope that that return is higher than what you could have gotten by putting all of the excess money for that down payment directly into the market, whether that be in equities, bonds, God help you, crypto, anything like that. And if you can get a better return in the market, you should. You should not get that house. You should rent for that time, and then when the time comes, buy it outright because you'll have done much better. That's a decision you have to make personally. That is not work for everyone. Yeah, you also could, like you said, you got to be able to outperform it in the market, which, yeah. mm -hmm. depending on who you are, may be super easy. Also, may be a terrible, terrible time. Yeah, if you have a really good financial advisor, just let them do it for you. If you're doing it yourself, you better do your research, figure it out. You could you could just say historically, like put it into an S&P 500 index fund, go on, you're going to make 7% a year. I, God, I'm, I'm really hesitant to even say that nowadays because I think things have just changed. I, and I, I know I'm going to bite my tongue here because everyone says everything has changed and it never does change. And it always ends up just being the best decision to make. But doesn't it feel like everything's kind of different now? Like we just, we, we're fully, like we've bitten into the insanity. Yeah, I mean, just look at the robo-advisors that are all online now. You give them their money. You give the money to this robo-advisor, essentially. You plug in a few parameters of what you want to do. And most of them practically guarantee a 10 to 15% return on your money. It does tax loss harvesting all the same. It, they do fantastic jobs for cheaper than your normal advisor and like maybe better option to do that than to buy the house, rent and put it in one of those. And then you don't even have to work to do it. Well, to be fair, they're all just putting it into mutual funds that are churning and burning fees. But you're right. They are journeying. They are typically getting an acceptable return in the market. I think the dynamic has changed. It used to be it's everyone against the market. Now it's like everyone within the market against each other. It's we have a limited amount of resources and inflation is just sprinting for the top. And I, I swear, whatever number they come out with every month is just wrong and they have to know. It's not 8.5%. It's like 20 to 25. There's no way. It, just, it isn't. There's, it's ridiculous. And the Fed knows that. They have to. So with all this stuff happening, it's kind of like, hey, I literally just need to keep making more and more and more money until I can outpace all my neighbors and then still drive a Mercedes and get the things. I offer a very happy alternative. I think he who becomes a little more self-sustainable is always going to end up on top. This is just going to result in us trying to figure out how to be self-sustainable again until we can start growing our own gardens and figuring out our own stuff. That might be an extreme example, but like... How cool would that be if we can each like we can all kind of produce a little bit for ourselves and take less from others? Are you referencing the what were they the Liberty Gardens that happened during what was it World War One and World War Two? No, but I got to look into it. That sounds. What is it? Basically, times were really really tough, and the U.S. government told people to. Uh, it was like kind of like a small propaganda type thing, but it was like have a liberty garden, do your part. And it was essentially like people would grow gardens in their backyards and that type of thing. And the point was to grow food for themselves to put on their own tables to take less stress off the economy of trying to produce all those things while everybody else is off at war and such. I would never sell it as a hyper-American thing, but I actually love that idea. I've wanted to grow my own lettuce and tomatoes for the longest time. I mean, even if you come out to where it's like you get one harvest every month or so and it lasts you a week or two, that's still a help. It'd be great if they get automated. I, like, 
and I know this is super, super millennial, whatever thinking here, <laughs> yeah. but gardening isn't easy. I mean, obviously, like you would think it would be, you go plant a seed in the ground, it creates a tomato plant. It has five tomatoes. Each tomato has 20 seeds in it. You plant those seeds, you have an exponentially growing amount of tomatoes. If that worked, there would not be world hunger. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It's really hard. If you could make a greenhouse or whatever that's fully automated, you, that's pretty simple, does all the stuff on its own, monitors itself in junk, that would be fantastic and make it somewhat affordable, great. I think it all comes down to it's a race. It is quite literally a race between automation and mass poverty. It's, it's basically, can we automate to the point where we can produce more and enough to be okay across the board? Or are we just going to have to, is life just going to suck for a minute or two? And I don't have an answer to that. That's another good investment point. If you, if you think, if you think we can automate, buy the tech companies. If you don't think we can, buy the farming companies. Boom. There you go. That's your non-investment advice for the day. One and the same though. Joey's just saying that we have uh, fully autonomous (laughs) tractors out there, dude. Yeah, but we build them differently. Different companies make different things, right? Yeah, you never would have thought that John Deere would be a tech giant, though, did you? No, I didn't, and that that is that is actually an awesome point. I totally forgot about that. You're right. I should buy some John Deere stock. That's a great idea. Are they public? Mm-hmm. I don't know. They've got to be. I'll look that up right after the show because that's a, that's a great point. Oh, and one of the ones I picked up recently, or I was thinking about. I don't want to disclose anything here. Uh, Shopify, I think, is going to be one of the new uh, new giants of the generation, and I think that's because. We've kind of hit the point where we're moving into like this um, this creator economy. Everyone's got a side gig. Everyone's got a second job. Everyone does something after work. Hell, we're doing this after work or you're in the middle of studying. But everyone has something that they want to do because they're passionate about and they know they can sell it and push it out to other people. What do they use? Shopify. It's the best system for e-commerce. So... The Animal Spirits guys were talking about this for a little bit a while back, and the Where It Happens guys, uh, which is Greg Eisenberg, Sahil Bloom, they talked about it pretty in depth. Uh, they talked about the team and how much faith they have in the product, and I'm of the exact same opinion. I think it's an awesome company. I actually have owned a Shopify store in the past. We used for a little bit. We just we had a, like a little t-shirt company. We experimented. Never really went anywhere. Never did anything. Never spent any money on it. But it was fun. It was it was an easy way to get into something like that. And I'm incredibly happy with this company. I think this is a great thing to invest in. This is not investment advice, but this is something that I've been kind of noodling on because I think this is I think the creator economy is actually only gonna grow. I think it's fantastic because even I don't have much knowledge about what Shopify is, but what I get is basically it's a no code system. You wanna have a merch shop or like a little store online that you can link to your website or whatever and sell things. You go to them and it's all pretty much set and done. You don't got to know how to code. You don't got to contact anyone. It's pretty easy to set up. You take pictures, you list them on there. You make some little tiny adjustments with like fonts and stuff, and then you're ready to go. Right. That's fantastic for the small businesses. Or for like a college student or someone who works a nine to five job and doesn't like what they do and wants to pursue their passion. They want to sell their art. They, God, they sow, I don't know, they, they grow food that they want to ship and like create a local farmer's market, uh, put up flyers and just like service the local community, go from there, outsource the shipping to any of our many, sort. I, it just the ideas are endless and it's a great way for like a budding entrepreneur to get started. And you have to think, I love the idea of the future where the majority of people work and serve their local communities. It's not focused on how do I build the next tech unicorn, it's... I want to be the guy that when I go out in my neighborhood, everyone's like, oh, hey, that's John. He does X. Like everybody knows him for that. And this is what his family does. And he's in charge of producing this for us. And if someone else comes into this town or if he moves somewhere else, they're going to know that's just what they do. I think it's a cool future. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Kind of on the same thing. Did you see that? uh, I sent this to you a while ago. It was the kid that was making bowls. Um, and he was trying to sell them on Shopify. It blew up on Twitter. And he got super famous all of a sudden, didn't he? Yeah, so his dad kind of posted a thing out there. Hey, my son's getting bullied. He he make, he does woodworking. He creates bowls and little 
uh, the little trays girls use. What are they? Uh, charcuterie boards. Mm-hmm. Those things. He makes those things and like Boys he had too. a little Shopify thing. He's like, I want sixty followers, and that's all it is. Well, he blew up, and he got twenty thousand orders <laughs> practically overnight, which the kid estimated would take him a cool thirty-two years to make and fill. So instead, he twist he kind of twisted this around and said, I'm gonna make one bowl, and he made it for Ukraine, and he set up like essentially a GoFundMe account, and he's like, whoever, like we'll do a random raffle. You put if you list uh, your name on there when you donate uh then uh you'll be in the raffle to win the bowl and he only had a goal of raising five thousand dollars at the start you want to know what he's at now i'm gonna call it two hundred and fifty thousand. Two hundred and forty-five thousand dollars that people have donated for <laughs> to this kid who was just out there because he wanted 60 followers and to sell a few bowls on shopify he raised 250 grand pretty much. I swear I didn't actually look at that number. That was just a straight up guess, and I'm really proud of myself for it. It's wild. I mean, because I just looked at it the other day and it was at 199,000. So he's, it's just some kid who's making balls in his basement with like a lathe and all. Like these little shops like can change people's whole worlds and that type of thing. Well, a solid talent and a penchant for marketing and a good story will go further than almost anything else. You have to one, and I see a lot of people push this idea, and I'm a big believer in this idea. You have to be visible yourself. A lot of the tech folks like to h- kind of hide behind their brand, and brands are cool. Like there's always like a there's always like a hot hot new brand that's got a cool name, a cool logo, some good colors, and it catches on for a day or two. But a good brand truly has a human being behind it, and if that human is willing to be publicly visible. I think there's so much more traction on companies like that. And I reference them a lot. Greg and Sahil are really good about this. They make sure that they are front and center and they say, hey, this is me. Um, I own this company. I am a human. I'm vulnerable. I'm wrong all the time. I would love to answer your questions. Please talk to me whenever you'd like. And that makes them, that makes me want to use their products instead of it just being a cool logo. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I guess the perfect example is this is look at like all the talent shows that are on TV. America's got talent, that type of thing. What ones make it the farthest, the ones that have the best sob story or whatever to go along with them. Oh yeah. Cause people eat that up. Yes. And if you combine a sob story with genuine talent, almost always wins. doesn't have to yep. be a sob story. It can just be a good story. It can be someone who is genuinely interesting and generally interested in others. Exactly. I am a big fan of that. And I think we are all kind of at once realizing that there is no real get-rich-quick scheme except for getting super, super lucky. You just, you have to be interested in other people and you have to yourself be interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's totally hit or miss with that. Like like you said, it's totally luck because you could have a little sink sponge with a smiley face on it and it could become one of the top-selling things in the world. I've seen those. Uh, like Scrub Daddy did, but you could have a revolutionary piece of technology and it won't get adopted at all right so <laughs> right so what was the other one there was um oh god i don't know where i saw this story it was like i was like the, like the goo or the slime that some girl was making at some point and it kind of it looked like ice cream do you know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. yeah that stuff absolutely blew up and i don't know who was talking about the story and basically she she just made these little bowls of they, it looked super appealing. It almost looked edible or it was basically just goo. I don't know what was made of it. And it was, you would decorate it like it was like an ice cream bowl or something. And you couldn't eat it. You could just squish it. So someone was talking about like, hey, oh, it was in the morning brew, wasn't it? I think it was uh, Alex Lieberman. I think so. I think you're right. Yep. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And so he, he was doing an interview. Love Alex, by the way. He's great content. Awesome dude. Apparently, I'd never spoken to him, but seems like an awesome dude. Makes great product. He was speaking with this woman saying, hey, this is a wild product. I mean, to me, I don't know if I would pay for something like this. Like this, this might be worth like three, four dollars to me. Like what do these sell for? And she said 15 to 20 dollars a pop, depending on what it is. And he's like, holy shit. Like how many do you sell a week? And she said, I think I put about 100 orders a week out, something like that. And so he did the quick math and he's like, you're making literally something along the lines of like 200,000 bucks a week or every two weeks or something like that. Just an unreal amount of money because people were thrilled to pay that much money for something that they just enjoyed. Just a total random fad meme. She captured the kind of like ASMR uh, 
factor of people like to squish things and they just want some kind of little stress relief that looks cute and they can hang on their wall. Random ass concept. Absolutely took off. Didn't have to change the world. Just made people happy. They're willing to pay for it. It made sense though, along with the fidget spinners when they blew up because kind of like we talked about earlier, our brains are in hyperdrive. Like the kids have to be. And when you go out of your hyperdrive, whether it be school or work, and you get to the end of the day, your brain's still like, your engine doesn't just stop and shift down to a lower gear. It has to like slowly move down. And that's one of those things. People need something to fidget with, with their hands, whatever else to like do, because they're still like mentally moving fast. They got to keep doing things. Fidget spinners was a great example. That's a really good way to bring that up. So what if we could find a way to increase the dopamine appeal of reading just slightly and then like taper it off until it's down to just normal reading. I don't know how we would do that. I also don't know how to do that. But all I can think of is I like to read before bed because it, it puts me to sleep. It slows my brain down enough to where I can go to sleep. And that's really nice because that's when you know, like you're, you're hit the point where you realize you've been reading the same sentence three times and you say, oh, okay, I'm sleepy enough that I can go to bed. Done. But you can't you can't just stop your day and pick up a book and start reading unless you're crazy like you or Joey. I don't know how you guys do it. I can't do that. I have to go down two levels of energy before I get there. But that's just because I need a little bit more excitement and dopamine before I can hit the point where I'm calm enough to do reading. What if we could make reading just a little bit more happy juice and then slowly taper it down? We need those Harry Potter books with the moving images or whatever in them. And then <laughs> that would make it a little bit better. Just kind of like the pictures in the wall in the movies where they move a little bit. If you could put that in a book, put it in like a Kindle type book where like you hit a page and all of a sudden it has a little moving image or whatever up at the top of it to describe the scene. That would be pretty cool. A little more dopamine. Maybe even less than that. So screens definitely are appealing to our eyes. And that's why I used to read an iPad and I enjoyed it. And I've gone back to actual like normal books because I think that's the best way to read. So I'm thinking of a way that maybe you could maybe you could use like your Apple reading or anything like that, one of your reading apps, and you could have it somehow sync up to your book so that you could seamlessly interchange between your device and the book itself. I mean, you'd have to flip to whatever page you were on, but you wouldn't have to like spend the brain power to fight to figure out where you were in each. That might be such a simple fix that it could get us there. I mean, the Kindles are kind of like a good bridge. Like, I'm not talking the Kindle Fire. I'm talking like the original Kindle books. Those, they're not a screen in the sense that like your iPhone or your iPad or anything like that. The way they work is they're magnetized ink droplets. Yeah. So like when you go on there and you use it, it... um. Like it just moves around and changes the ink droplets. That's why when it dies, it'll still show a picture on your like main screen of your Kindle because like it just didn't change its magnetizing fields or whatever for it. So like it's a nice intermediary between like I'm getting all of the blue light of staring at my phone and that's keeping me awake and alert and a book that's like, okay, this is ready to put me to a sleep. It is an interesting idea. I don't know. I to think on it. Okay. All right. We're kind of at the point where I really want to do uh, – one topic we've been putting off for a while was uh, your one of your company highlights, uh, the Crypto Mary. Oh, okay. Is that okay this with is, you? Was it too much of a jump? This is what was was it yours? This is mine. Okay, can we do it? So it, yeah, we should totally do it. It's it's totally so much more superficial than everything else we've talked about here. I love it. But I'll leave you this. So there's this app or website called Crypto Mary. And what this is, is it allows you to register your marriage online and mint your own NFT marriage certificate, create your own family DAO, and manage joint crypto assets. So this is for your crypto couples that are really into this and it's their thing. You can make your marriage now part of Web3. This is so hyper dystopian. I I have so many thoughts. (laughs) I don't know where to start. I think it could be good. The fact that like you have the blockchain managing like your assets and all that type stuff, it'd be easy to incorporate in a will or anything else like that. So that way it gets dispersed to children or whoever else upon your death. 
your records being all online, that's not such a bad thing. I don't know how often you need your marriage certificate as an adult. Uh, I assume it's about as much as you need your birth certificate as an adult, maybe even less, but like, it's nice to be able to have it in your pocket if you needed it. This is, I think, an amazing tool for a high-tech, high-functioning, healthy family. Makes perfect sense. You could make you could make financial decisions together. Everyone would have equity. You could manage family assets efficiently, intelligently, and quickly. And you could remove power from the state and put it back in your individual hands in your estate. Legally, I feel like the lawyers would eat this up because it would be nice and easy to deal with and to handle records. For a non-high-functioning family, I think this is a nightmare waiting to happen with scams right around the corner. <laughs> I'm just kind of imagining a family that, like, monetizes chores. Like, you do, like, laundry gets you a dollar or whatever else. Well, instead, it gets you a token, and then the tokens have a certain amount of value in the family or whatever it's contributed to, like the vacation fund. And then at the end, the mom, the dad, the son, and the daughter all vote using the tokens they earned. <laughs> from doing their chores of where's family going on vacation this year. I think that's <laughs> In a the family DAO. That is a really fun idea because you'd have to earn the tokens, but then we, you'd have to somehow verify physical tasks. That's really the only issue that we, oh no, okay, there's more issues, but that, that's like the main issue I think we've kind of had is trying to bridge the web three using NFTs for authenticity and tokens, bridging that into real world concepts is very difficult because there's no real way for a physical asset to communicate yet and say, well, task is done, here we go. I don't know, the second you figure that out, I think something like that makes perfect sense. Everything just is Wi-Fi connected and you have your little NFT identifier on your phone, you go up, you tap it on the dishwasher, you take the dishes out, the little weight sensor tells you, oh, it's done. And then they get their token put in, they go to do the laundry, they tap their phone again, they put the load in there, the weight sensor says, ah, we've got clothes in here. You run it, you move it into the dryer, it senses that you took it out, put it in the other one. Okay, you get one token for that, and you get one for putting it in the dryer, and so on and so on. It's like the Jetsons 2022 edition. Oh, yeah. Crazy. I don't know. I think that might be too future for me. It, it might be a little much, but I definitely could see all of the electronics in our house, pretty much the major ones, like becoming Wi-Fi connectable for reasons like this. Well, I've said I have so many fun ideas that I have pitched to Cody, our residential chief uh, chief of technology. And the big problem. So like my goal, obviously, is first and foremost, make Web3 stuff applicable in real life, make it worthwhile, make it tangible. I work in real estate, which is an industry that is entirely based on this is a physical asset and that's why it's valuable. The big problem that I have is we need, we need barcodes or something similar to a barcode that can constantly communicate on its own through a chip, through satellite, something. I don't know how the technology works. We need something that can be attached to physical assets that doesn't take up a lot of space that can constantly communicate with a system that monitors it and changes it in real time in the digital world. If you can connect the digital world and the physical world in real time without inhibiting our ability to use the things and to consume them how we like to consume them or to enhance it, you've won. You have 100% won and you've made it, you have brought the Web3 crypto dream into fruition. So you're looking for like a Web3 version of like a point of sale system that like tracks where like when a good is sold from a store, updates it, okay, we're we're only down to five shirts in this style. Okay, we need to order more, automatically gets shipped to the store type thing. Yep, think one step even further. So one of the fun ideas, hate to give away ideas, but one of the fun ideas we've had that we are actually working on is we I wanted a way to track luxury wine sales and consumption and a way to kind of like a store and allow collectors to communicate in that way. And so you have a couple problems here. You have to verify when something's been consumed itself, where it's been purchased, when it was purchased, and that it is what it says it is. And you could solve that in a few ways, but they all do have to communicate at once to a blockchain system and they have to sense uh, they have to sense the weight of the bottle, the contents of the bottle, 
uh, if it's been replaced with something. There, there's just so many problems to solve that just aren't able to be solved yet. But it makes me really excited for the next five years because <laughs> I think we're going to see some really cool stuff. Yeah, I keep seeing cool new products and Web3 things all the time. It's really like we are moving at light speed into whatever this field is. And it's getting really interesting. And there's so many cool products coming out. And it used to be that it's like, it's really just Amazon and Elon that were like doing their thing, like making the world like, but now it's like everyone's in it. Like everyone's participating in it in different ways and shapes and forms. And the little guys are out there kicking out really cool products like every single day. I'm going to leave you. We're, we're at about the hour mark. So I'm going to leave you with a really fun thought that you can have your wrap up thoughts. And my fun thought is this. You don't have to do anything crazy to succeed in this new Web3 insane, fast-moving world. All you have to do is two things. Be interested in what's going on. And two, be willing and open to learn new ideas and technologies. If you can do those two things, you're going to be ahead of 95 to 99% of everyone else because most people just don't want to accept it. And they will be fine. They will be consumers the rest of their lives. If you're open and willing, you'll be ahead of everyone else and you'll be wealthy and happy and good to go. Those are my closing thoughts. You? I agree. I couldn't. There's nothing I disagree with there. I agree 100%. Perfectly happy with that. Okay. Anything else for a wrap up? Nope. That's all it for me. Love it. All right. May see you Thursday. May not. We'll see you when we see you. Hopefully once a week is good, but otherwise it is how it is. Life is busy. So have an awesome week. Have a good week.